singularity. My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoyed this podcast, you can show your support by either writing a brief review on iTunes or by becoming a patron via interviewthefuture.com. Now, some of you guys may know that I've been working on a new book. The provisional title is Rewriting the Human Story, How Our Story Determines Our Future. Struggling with this book is why it's been a number of months since my last podcast interview. <laughs> and so I thought it could be useful to me and hopefully interesting to you if I were to have a conversation with a few story experts and ask them questions such as why story, what is story, and perhaps most importantly, how does story relate to technology, artificial intelligence, being human, and our future. Well, today is the second interview of this series and my guest is PJ Manny. PJ is the author of the Phoenix Horizon trilogy and has already been a guest on Singularity FM twice before. She's a friend and I'm a big fan of her work and her books. And I highly recommend that if you haven't seen the previous two interviews, you guys go check out both of them because they're absolutely worth your time. Now, the previous two interviews were mostly focused on book one and book two, which were called respectively revolution and identity. Today, we're going to touch on conscious, uh, on conscious, uh, conscience. I'm conscience, like it's like, let your conscience be your guide. Conscience and exactly right. We would like to let our conscience be our guide because it's a very useful thing to have sometimes for some purposes. And I believe for our purposes here today, it would be a very useful guide indeed, even though maybe for other people in places like Facebook, etc., it may not be a very good guide for their own particular purposes of using that particular technology. I don't know. We'll talk about that anyway. But in addition to that, and perhaps we should start with it, we're going to talk about the importance of story what PJ calls the new mythos and what perhaps I refer to as rewriting the human story. So after this long introduction, welcome to Singularity uh, FM, PJ. Thank you so much for having me. It's a wonderful opportunity once again, thanks. And I should have said welcome back because it's your third time. So PJ, I wanted to start with with sort of the big picture. So perhaps um, we should start with what is the new mythos and how did you come up with the idea? Well, there's been bits and ideas floating around for the last decade about how different kinds of stories that we are very influenced by may not be serving us. Arizona State University has a project where Neil Stevenson, among others, has been looking at the effect of science fiction and fantasy stories in helping guide us to better futures. And one of the things that has come up, noticed by a number of people in the past decade, is that dystopias 
while being cautionary tales can also leave the issue with, well, we have this dystopic landscape we're left with and we vanquished the bad guy and then that's the end of the story, then what? So I was on a panel in 2018 at NorwestCon called Science Fiction in the Age of President Trump. And I was sitting with Nisi Shawl, who's one of my heroes, uh, Gordon Van Gelder, another hero, <laughs> and Elsa Sunjinson, who, and we were all trying to figure out what was the effect of watching such political polarity, the rise of political extremism, political violence in the country and its relation to science fiction. And I had this, the, I've only had this a couple of times, well, a few times in my life. One of them is when I met my husband, by the way, or no, actually when I decided to marry my husband. Um, but I had an actual epiphany, like out of body, the top of your head opens up, you lose any sense of everything around you. <laughs> and I, I had this moment where I just started channeling whatever was coming through. And I started saying the problem with these dystopias is that it's not just the it's not just the subject matter that's a problem it's the actual structure of our stories it's it's the who our heroes are how we structured the hero's journey all of these issues that we take for granted in western storytelling from three-act structure with a tiny denouement to the individual uh as the heroic uh protagonist were all problematic in how we were going to face a better future. And one of those, you know, having that moment where you're just, you know, I, poor Nisi was sitting next to me and I think she thought I'd gone absolutely mad. But, uh, <laughs> but what was so interesting was that actually galvanized the audience. We had the most remarkable um, back and forth. It was, it was more like group participation, which was really the premise of my argument was that we can't have heroes the chosen one who doesn't know why they're chosen and all of these things um, because that creates the ability for a reader to think that society is made up of people who make change and then all the rest of us when that's not how society works at all and if we want our speculative fiction to reflect reality ironically um, we have to reflect it in how we tell our stories too Seth Godin says, pick yourself. Yeah, well, that's it. Exactly right. And, and the way Don't to do that... Don't wait to be picked. Don't wait right. for someone to give you the paper, to give you permission. Don't wait for permission. Don't wait for a diploma. Don't wait for someone else. Just pick yourself and get on with it. Well, and that's, that's also, and it's not just pick yourself, it's also pick yourself in relation to others. And I think that was really what I was trying to stress with deheroizing the hero's journey. It's not about a hero, it's about a bunch of people. And we're not going to solve the big issues that face humanity if we think we have to look for a single person and heroicize that person to solve that problem. And even as a metaphor, it doesn't work. We have to look at groups of people in collective action. And yes, there might be conflict in that collective action. Of course there is. We're all going to have different opinions about how we approach something. And that's where the juice comes from. But we really need to relook at how the myths that drive our stories, that, that we take for granted as fundamental in how story works, as not fundamental. And that includes 
story structures from other cultures. You know, three-act structure is ancient Greece. Like that's, it came from a very specific part of the world. Um, most cultures don't work within those structures. And we have imposed, what I think is fascinating, through a form of cultural imperialism uh, because of media and the power of Western media over the rest of the world. We have imposed that structure into other cultures without understanding that they have their own story structures and their own ways of characterization that we could learn a lot from. Yeah, and that kind of a sort of a pressure release at the end, the the combination uh, of the story, the, the resolution, uh, the happy ending, um, you this know, is it. that's all kind of, of course, Aristotle, uh, and it's not the case at all in Eastern thought, in Eastern storytelling, or in Africa. Uh, and for example, in, in Asia, stories are a lot more open-ended, and they don't have this kind of a once and for all, they, and they happily lived ever after. Uh, it's not like the end is the end. It's not like everything has been resolved, and it's not like, you know, there's no happy ending, really. It's just a, a new beginning. It, it's, it, and, and it's not, and, and even the whole idea of, uh, I, I was taking this course on the great courses about storytelling, and they were going through the, the, the mythos of all those cultures from Africa to Asia and, and so on. And they were saying how the, the idea of, of the story, of, of what is truth, of who is the protagonist is always changing across all these cultures and societies. Um, no, that's, so, that's very true. And your, your whole idea of the happy ending is fascinating because that's where I really started to focus in conscience was this notion that the denouement as, and I'll explain to your, your viewers who aren't, weren't English people, English majors, uh, <laughs> or, or Western story majors, um, the denouement, so you have your rising action through a story, and you have all the obstacles that the hero or heroes or heroines go through and all their complications, and you have a climax where it's the big showdown, and then you have the ending, the denouement, which is a little, if you're looking at it as a graph, it's a little short whoop, at the end of the graph where in television, in episodic television, the old TV adage was sap up the wrap up. Um, or it's where you see everybody hug and everybody's going to be okay, out to black, or whatever that is. And I realized that this was an incredibly dangerous thing in some kinds of storytelling, especially storytelling where we're supposed to solve a big problem, but then you know off screen it's the story's really just beginning. And, you know, I used to make fun of Tolkien's nine endings in Return of the King for Lord of the Rings. And um, that, you know, he just couldn't resist. He had to wrap up every single subplot. And so you had all these multiple endings. But there's something to that. And while it's frowned upon, especially the tradition I come from, which is Hollywood or playwriting, uh, where the denouement should be as quick as it could 
possibly be? In reality, when we're telling speculative fiction stories, we literally are just, the story has just started, even if there aren't sequels, <laughs> even if it isn't a book series. And I wanted to reflect that in my ending that so they get rid of the big bad, everything changes, and then what? And now the real work has to happen. So let's start organizing. What does that work look like? Because to me, that's where the interesting stuff happens. And in speculative fiction, that should be where the interesting stuff happens. We're helping explain new worlds. So this is a tension and trust me when I tell you that my editor and I had an enormous back and forth of what's too much, what's too little, what can I get away with? What are readers' expectations considering this I'm writing in a traditional form? Um, it, it's a big thing. Yeah, and I noticed that that uh, uh, at the end of your third book myself, and it also reminded me to Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, most recent book, The Ministry of the Future, where he has the same thing happen at the end. And he spends a long time. And, and actually, I think he spent a long time in another book uh, of his uh, something 2040. I forgot New York 2040 or what, what was it called? I think it was called New York 2040 where um, or New York 2078 or 2140. I forget the name, but where basically the plot is New York kind of underwater with global warming and it's kind of, um, that's kind of the setup. Um, anyway, but what can the new, how far, okay, so you shared with us the, the, the sort of the genesis of the new mythos, how, how the idea came to you. And that was how many years ago? Uh, 2018, so we're talking four years ago. So four years ago. So what's happened since that moment? How far have you managed to push this idea? What, what have you learned about the world with this new tool now, with this new idea? Well, I had to rewrite conscience. Yeah. Um, There's a price had, for all of those things that we all, do. Uh, uh, yes, yes, exactly. Uh, we pay the always, price. Always pay a price for growth, but you have to do it. Um, and I brought together, I started, you know, knowing I hadn't invented the wheel, that other people had been, been mentioning this stuff and talking about it, but wanting to bring people together in a dialogue. I got together some people in a Facebook group literally the day after I got back from NorwestCon. And started inviting people little by little. And we've got a group now about 350 speculative fiction writers and academics and other creatives. There's some artists in there as well, who um, who all are interested in this and are grappling with the same topics. And within that group, we're always posting for each other issues about, well, what do the new versions of possible successful futures look like. And we're not looking at utopia. Utopia is a really um, dangerous word because it, and I say, I only say dangerous because of the negativity around it. Um, it feels sophomoric when people talk about utopias. And yet there has to be a certain amount of idealism that goes into the approach to things can be better, like the great Ursula Le Guin 
statement, and I'm just paraphrasing that, you know, once upon a time we thought the divine right of kings was immutable. Um, the, the, you know, we evolve as humans, we evolve, and our systems around us, our social systems, our, our technologies, our political systems, our economies evolve with that. And I wanted us to start looking at politics, economics, sociology, anthropology, everything that people were interested in to, you know, how could we start challenging the usual stories and take critical thinking skills to some of these assumptions of, of what humans are and what society is. And let's play with those because I think that's the only way you get to tell stories that might break free of the choking assumptions we have about who we are and where we're going. Mm -hmm. Very good. So is it fair to say then that the new mythos is about challenging the dominant stories within all kind of realms that you mentioned, politics, economics, science fiction, even literature, pop culture, you name it, science, new, news, journalism, whatever the, the realm you want to take, there is a story or, or a dominant kind of a story that kind there's of There's a dominant us, story. Yeah. Yes, exactly. This is it. That sets the rules, sets the players, sets the rewards, sets the whole context and, and how the, the game is played. So the new myth mythos kind of challenges that story uh, in its respective realm, whatever that may be, so that hopefully new ones can emerge. That's exactly correct. The I think the only way we progress as a society is to see how new metaphors, new models, new ways of looking at ourselves illuminate new paths. So I'm going to give an example. I've become really, I, I've known about him and the concept for years. Anyone who played in the sandbox as a transhumanism did, but I've been really interested in re-examining Pierre de Tejard de Chardin the great Jesuit priest and paleontologist who wrote some of the most fascinating philosophical. Um, and of course you have to remember how much he was fighting against because the Vatican was not interested in hearing his ideas. <laughs> uh, forget about the paleontology part. Um, really the, the issue that, that um, he and some other thinkers of the time, uh, like uh, Radansky was looking at the evolution of humans from and, and life and intelligence from a geological or geospheric perspective, you know, the, the formation of planets in, a in, 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 in our solar system or universe to the biologic. So we have a, a new evolution of, of now life is forming on top of this and the interaction of life and then both of them came up with, in their respective realms, this idea of what's the, the newest spheric or the newest sphere, which is the creation of a global brain. And uh, Teilhard de Chardin really foresaw in many ways 
mass communication, the internet, the creation of these nodes of intelligence that we're all using now, like we're living in it right now. Most people don't realize they live in the new sphere because they're swimming in it. And there's, you know, there is a metaphor that I would love to see used more in fiction and nonfiction, because I think if people understood, we really are all part of this great global system of thought, of communication, that we influence each other all the time, everywhere. I mean, even in revolution, I was, you know, my hero is like, oh my God, you know, what someone does in Des Moines affects people in Delhi. Like, yes, that's how it works. (laughs) Um, And so there's an example of a metaphor that I think is a new mythos metaphor that isn't about the more limited way we look at humans in a story but allows for the expansion of the idea that maybe humans are in a different kind of story. So there's an example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, uh, was it in our first or second interview, you said that the purpose of science fiction, you said that we're all fish swimming in us. Uh, we're all like fish in water, where story is like the water for us. And so the point of science fiction is to show us the the water. Uh, which I'm still is, working on that metaphor. <laughs> well, I, I'm kind of reciting it off the top of my head, but basically, I think who was it, uh, this kind of science author, uh, not science novel, novelist, Wallace, what's his name, Irwin Wallace or something. He had this invocation keynote where that's very famous, probably. 15 years ago or something where he talked about that metaphor of the two fish swimming in water and about water. But you're saying that, that, you know, story is like the, the water for story for us is like the water for fish. And just like presumably fish don't realize they're swimming in water. We don't realize we're swimming in story. We're submerged so deeply in story that we don't realize it. And the point of science fiction, therefore, is to bring this to our attention, which I thought was was brilliant, actually brilliant metaphors. Just I didn't say it well. <laughs> I, I, I do think that there's speculative fiction has a special place in in illuminating the stories we tell in there's a self-consciousness that can exist and I think actually should exist. Um, I mean, I don't want to tell everybody how to write their stories. It's not my job and we're all artists, so we're all going to do what we're going to do. Um, but for me, I find, you know, my mission has always been, and I think I say this every single interview we have and every single interview I'm on, my mission has always been to reveal to people how things work and what's coming because through stories, they can get a much better idea. I can have more fun exploring the what ifs, the scenarios, uh, then, you know, people don't want to hear a futurist talking about in a nonfiction sense, you know, here are all the scenarios of what could happen in the future. It's too much. Nobody can take that in, but they can take in a story and I can entertain them with a story. And because we like 
the causality. Our brains really, really like to create causality. You know, it's it's why narrative works so well for us. It's why it's our drug. Um, causality allows us to communicate. If we were communicating random bits of information, it would be A, hard to remember, and B, it wouldn't seem as important to us. Anything we communicate in the process of telling a story has this lovely causality that makes it easy to remember and easy to recommunicate. So I, I like everything you said here, but perhaps I'm, I'm debating whether I should try to give it a little tweak or whether we should jump first into what you think is a story so that you, we clarify a little more. Let's start with a clarification. What's, what's a story in your view? A story is, in my opinion, and every person who talks about story has a different opinion. Let's just get that out of the way. <laughs> in my opinion, a story is anything that laces together if A and B then C. It could be the story of an experiment in a scientific paper. It could be the story in a newspaper. It could be the story of a three-year-old trying to explain to their parent, I didn't break the, the flower pot and here's why. <laughs> the dog ate you know, my the homework. monster came in and... <laughs> um, story is how we take all that information and put it back out in a way that is accessible to others. And... I truly believe, and, and through story, we decide what's important. Because in the story of the little girl in the flower pot, she's only going to tell the bits that she thinks are pertinent to that story. The same with the newspaper article, the same with the science, with, with you know the science journal. You're telling the parts that have will have meaning to the end. And I think that it's a really interesting way that our brains work, that we're pruning, we constantly prune, whether we realize it or not, what's relevant so that when we get to the end and we look back at the story, we think, ah, okay, now I understand. Mm -hmm. Okay, so. Uh... I, I look at story very differently than everybody else, so I'm cool with that. Go for it. <laughs> and, and that's fine. No, that's fine. That's perfectly legitimate because I even have a, a little bit of a different definition, uh, if you will. So uh, I start from sort of Kenneth Burke's, uh, literally criticism, uh, critic uh, Kenneth Burke's definition or starting point, if you will, that story is, a, is, a, is equipment for living. Yes, that's great. And... Then Jeff Tishambiok comes in and, and he says that story, so so uh, Kenneth Burke is a good start, but I think Jeff Tishambiok gets it right when he says that story is about information processing. And then I bring in the technology at the end. So for me, the way I've defined it in my kind of book, quote, attempt so far, I shouldn't call it book, I should call it attempt. No, or, you call it a book. Okay. You call it a book. <laughs> a book in progress. Okay. 
because there's it's not a book quite yet. There's tons of work, but and and material, but it's just it's not quite a book work yet. Work in progress but, is the technical term. Work okay. in progress. Okay, so it's work in progress, and um, my definition is story is information processing technology. First, it's about information because there is something being communicated either from one generation to another, from one person or another, even or even across time, from one timeline to another timeline, over space and time. Then it's about processing because there's always a moral of the story, right? It's about more than the information. The information on its own is not it. The it is something more, something that we learn, some moral, some, some benefit that stays above where the sum of the parts of the story are, are more than, than just all, all parts on their own, right? So that's the processing. And then it's technology because it's an invention or a creation of the human mind. Now, uh, my previous uh, interviewee, Lisa Cron, she didn't like the word invention per se, uh, and we can debate on that, but at the very least, it is a creation of the human mind because story doesn't exist outside of the human mind. So maybe it's not an invention, just like we can debate whether mathematics is an invention or a creation of the human mind because it's not a natural phenomenon, but we kind of, we, it's, it's, it's a debate whether you discover math or you invent math formulas and stuff. Same with story. I think it's, we can debate whether it's created or invented, but either way, it's a product of the human mind. So, so just like Kevin Kelly says that technology is anything useful created by the mind, by the human mind, therefore story would be properly a technology, a technology that as Kenneth Burke says, is our equipment for living. It is what has allowed us to be here where we are today. It is what has allowed us to evolve and to adapt over time and space. Um, and it is w what allows us to process the world, as you were just saying. And the, the, the point that you're getting at with the new mythos and, and the point that I'm getting at with rewriting the human story is the same point, which is our equipment for living seems to be obsolete. Mm. It seems that it's old. It doesn't work anymore in the new environment that we're in. And so we see that our institutions, our communities, our everything of our civilization, every single facet is challenged like it's never been challenged before. And the, the core of that problem stems from the fact that the old stories or the old myths, as you might call them, are no longer useful to tell us who we are, where we're coming from, where we're going, what is to be done in a situation or in a crisis as the one we are facing today. We don't get that, right? Because in a way, stories, yeah. if stories are an equipment for living, that means they're like... Uh, GPS navigational system or like a compass. They tell us the North Star. They tell us where we are and where we should go and what we should do and what is not to be done even because people like us do things like that or don't do things like those people there do or what shouldn't be done, right? So all of this is regulated in a story. And unfortunately, right now, we don't have such an overarching story. Uh, that seems to be working 
And it seems to me that's kind of one of the problems of, of our civilization. And you see, you know, there's so many people thinking and have been thinking along these lines. I recently discovered a book by uh, Jonah Sachs uh, called The Story Wars, mm. uh, who, uh, Winning the Story Wars. And I forget the subtitle, but he defined uh, this problem, and I'm trying to to find the quote here, he defined this as the myth gap. He calls it the space between the realities of our moment in history and the shared stories to which we turn for explanation, meaning, and instruction for action. Mm -hmm. So that's the myth gap that he, he, he calls. So the myth tells us what to do, or the stories tell us what to do, and we have this kind of a crisis, and the myth is so old and out of date that now we have this gap. And so that opportunity of our lifetime, perhaps the opportunity of the 21st century, perhaps the greatest leadership opportunity of our civilization so far, perhaps, I don't know if that's not a bombastic statement, is for someone, a storyteller, a leader of some kind, to come up with a story that fills that gap a story that can unite us as a species or even more, it should go, I think, in my opinion, beyond the species, but uh, that can... I think you... Yeah. I have to interrupt you. I have to interrupt you because sure. I think you just said something that is on one hand very important and on the other hand, you fell into your own trap. Sure, yeah. On one hand, the idea of, of writing the story is important but it's not going to be one leader. It's not going to be one story. It's going to be hundreds of stories. It's going to be thousands of stories. It's going to be tens of thousands of stories because ultimately the myths we created weren't from a single story. And it might've been underpinned by people like Aristotle going, Hey, I saw a play. I have, I can create rules to that play. And I saw another play and it kind of fits into my rules too. Instead, if we all start writing these stories where we think, better ways of approaching our problems may lead, we're going to have a much more likely successful outcome because of the sheer weight of all those stories. So PJ, I totally agree with you that, um, and that's kind of part of the reason why I've been stuck on the third part of my book, um, because the first part of my book is called Story. And it basically explains what story is all about, how it works, the functions, the origins, the biology, the neurology, etc. Part two is called Our Story, and it goes into sort of the, the human story, where it originates, how it has brought us to our present day. And then part three is the future story, what I call rewriting the human, the, the human story. And part of the problem is that Yes, on the one hand, I totally agree with you. It cannot be a story written by a single person. It cannot even be a story written by a single nation or a single community or a single um, civilization, maybe not even a single species. So not even a single sex or gender, but we have to go way beyond that We because we have to be able to accommodate in our future story for, uh, you know, transhumans, not just LGBTQ, and, but also transhumans, possibly artificial intelligences or mind uploads, 
possibly alien intelligences, possibly uh, uplifted beings like animals, etc. Um, and so that's part of the the problem, obviously, that that story has to be so diverse like no other story ever, ever has before. On the other hand, though, there has to be some kind of a structure or some kind of what I would call rules. Uh, just like, for example, for the World Cup in soccer, uh, you have all nations from the planet getting together, and those are nations who take, for example, North Korea and any country in the West uh, or even China and so on. There's a lot of things we disagree on, but when we go on the soccer field, we all agree about the rules of the game. We accept that story as the story within which all conflict is being directed towards the embedded conflict resolution mechanisms which are part of that story. And so what I'm trying to say is we need to have some kind of an overarching structure which is again a, a kind of a story that would allow the peaceful coexistence of mutually exclusive stories. And that would, so for example, in Canada, where I live in Ontario, I'm, I pride myself, even though it's been challenging as of lately, that we have a number of communities of Amish people. And they're literally stuck 150, 200 years ago back in time. And now it's been even more challenging with the pandemic because while we have like 82% um, vaccination rates, uh, and actually it's much higher, but the reason why it's only 82% is because those community overwhelmingly have decided not to vaccinate themselves because of their story, the story that they have accepted as the story that tells them who they are, where they're coming from and where they're going and what is allowed and what is not allowed in their kind of ethical worldview. But we do have an overarching story over my story and those people's story called sort of Western-style liberal democracy, which allows for the peaceful coexistence of those two mutually exclusive stories. So. When I drive on the road and pass them and they're in their horse buggy, you know, we pass each other peacefully and we don't hopefully clash and fight and etc. There's no conflict or if there is conflict and friction, the system has mechanisms to rectify that. And so I agree with your point that we need this kind of a multiplicity story uh, and I say also multiplicity is better than a singularity in the, the chapter outline on that topic. But we also need some kind of a structure, overarching structure that sets the rules of the game. And that's what I'm struggling with right now too, because if you lack that, the mutually exclusive parts of, of, of the stories create conflict which becomes violent. And, and we want to avoid that for peaceful coexistence because uh, I think it was Martin Luther King who said that now we live in a world where it's not a question about violence or nonviolence. It's a question of uh, nonviolence or extinction. Be because violence now has gotten to that point where we're literally going to be facing extinction. Um, and so that's kind of my response to you to that. So what do you think? Is, does that make sense to you? That's part of my struggle. So 
<clears throat> it makes complete sense. And there is, in fact, one overarching story, which every cultural and spiritual group on the planet has basically agreed is the story. And it's what I call the metal rules, because not everybody follows what's technically called the golden rule. They're ones that are of negative negation, et cetera. So for instance, the golden rule is do unto others that which you would have done unto you. The silver, silver rule, which actually comes out of Judaism, is do not do unto others that which you would not like them to do unto you. And then there are variations on that. And when you look at all the different metal rules, I, I think they're really only three, gold and silver and platinum. They pretty much cover the number of interactions <laughs> and, and attitudes towards those interactions that two people of potentially differing agendas could have. And we have come to this incredibly, it sounds simplistic, but it isn't, <laughs> um, definition of ethics because it really is, does it cover every single thing? Maybe not, but it's the most helpful one we've yet come up with as a species. And I would argue it's still pretty darn helpful. It's a recognition of what we have in common, of our humanity. And if my books do anything, and I actually come out and talk about the metal rules because <laughs> I think they're that important. My books do anything. I really hope it's that you see that we're going to have a lot of different ways of thinking about who we are as humans very soon. And they're all human and they all deserve respect and they all deserve our empathy and our compassion. And while they might not, they might be villainous. I have plenty of villains who are uploaded digital personalities, um, but I have heroes too. And, and in between, you know, I have an incredibly flawed hero uh, who makes all the wrong choices because he's human. <laughs> yeah that's human yeah you know he's he's uh and this for me these are the training wheels to start talking about artificial intelligence but i think that we do have a framework in which to tell those stories you know it's funny just this morning i just read the most remarkable post uh on facebook um about uh, someone who, a uh, person of color bringing a young black boy to the museum to see, and this is the part that blew my mind, Alexander, the portrait of Alexander Dumas at the Met in New York. And he had said that the, uh, that the um, Three Musketeers was his favorite book. And this gentleman wanted this boy to see that a black man wrote that book. And he starts reciting Hamlet and they start talking about Hamlet because the kid is reading Hamlet in school. And the to be or not to be speech, the kid understands at a profound level that that speech is actually about him. That the challenges of living in a dangerous time 
not being the person anyone wants to see. Hamlet could not be a more ancient story. Shakespeare didn't write it. It was written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Shakespeare. And he just took a version of it he had heard and then made his own. So while on one hand, we're talking about the most, you know, re revenge and uh, power and kingship, and we're talking about very old myths. In fact, there's a movie that's coming out that's the, the Ur Hamlet, which is called The Northman, uh, uh, that's coming out soon, um, which is all Vikings, you know, because that's actually where the story comes from. The... The idea that we have these incredibly old stories that still touch us, I'm not saying get rid of the old stories or how cultures look at their version of story. I'm saying be open enough to understand where we intersect, where our commonality is, because I truly believe if you could hear my story and I could hear yours, and we could sit down and talk and find those that common ground and not be pulled away by the propagandistic stories that our cultures create to for their own political and economic agendas i think we'd go a long way to solving a lot of the interpersonal and i mean this from from big political movements a lot of the interpersonal problems we have today Um, I'm wondering if I kind of pushed you to go into the details a little too quick for the benefit of our audience. I'm so sorry. Uh, no, no, no. I'm just wondering um, which element or which of the threads I should grab here now that will be best for us uh, for the purposes of our conversation. Because first, I was surprised that you said that Alexander Dumas was a black person. Yes. Uh, so tell me a little bit about that, maybe, because that's a point of curiosity. So Alexander Dumas uh, was the grandson of a general who was African, who had been transported to, his family had been transported as slaves to the Caribbean. And he was a brilliant soldier, brilliant strategist. Um, his son, was the right hand to Napoleon and became one of became the highest ranked general of color, I think in Europe. I could be wrong. Had a falling out with Napoleon, as you do, <laughs> as everyone did, and um, uh, lost so much of the coveted power and position that he had attained. And Alexander, was his son. He was of mixed race, but he looked black. And very similar to Pushkin, I think. Yes, Pushkin's yes, boy. yes, exactly right. Um, and a lot of young Dumas' life was spent in defense of his right to be. Yeah. I he fought a lot that. of fights. There were a lot of duels. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he had a, a uh, Rabsalian personality, lots of wine, women, and song. Um, he was a big guy in, in every way. 
and like Pushkin, which is why right, he you died know, in, very in a duel. Right, right, <laughs> right? Exactly. He got shot in the end. I mean, he wasn't much of a shooter to begin, much of a shot, but well, yeah, he was a trained by had been trained by two of two of the greatest duelists in France. <laughs> Uh, he was pretty damn good. Um, but Dumas was this extraordinary person who just would not let the slings and arrows get to him and fought back in every way he knew how, whether it was the sword or the pen. And there's a reason why so many of his stories are about the outsider. Who am I? How do I fit in? So How in do a way, I, yeah. he fought against the dominant story yes. first with his. So that, but that's so, so explaining so much now. So at the that tells me now why he had a personal reason to create stories that fight the dominant narrative because. He had to have that story for his own personal usage to serve him, to justify who he is, to help him survive and to help him, give him a reason and meaning to fight on, to not give up and to, to embrace who he is and, and to kind of fight for his slot under the sun, if you will. His greatest stories are all about underdogs who should never who should have simply either died in prison or never left their farm or, you know, in the dominant divine right of Kings structure that he was, you know, that, that in the 19th century, he was writing about earlier centuries. And he was a very smart guy. He knew never to write about the time he was in <laughs> because he would be accused of, of political heresy. So he could write about other times. He would use political, he would use historical fiction as a way of dealing with, like people who write science fiction use it as a way to deal with our present problems and our present questions. He used historical fiction in the same way. And he said it in a safer place, but they were always the stories of people upsetting the hierarchies of class and position that he himself had been fighting against his whole life. Yeah. And, and that explains so much because again, and that's, that was my concern why, or my concern that potentially we went a little bit way too much into the weeds and into the nitty gritty because we can kind of geek on that stuff, but I hope it's interesting and kind of rewarding for all those people. That's why I want to make sure we, we kind of are clear and, and don't make big presumptions. Uh, but, but. So in short, stories tell us who we are, where, where we are, where we're going, what's right, what's wrong, where we should go, what's allowed, what's not allowed. Everything that matters in our wor world is stipulated in one story or another, either consciously or subconsciously. And whether we realize it or not, as Lisa Cron says, uh, those who don't know the power of story become victims to it, fall victims to it. Exactly. So you either have to realize the power of story so that you can rewrite your own story, like Alexander Dumas write by story, mm -hmm. or if you deny the power of story, chances are you're going to have, you're going to fall victim to it. 
and chances are someone else would end up writing your own story because someone else would tell you who you are, where you're coming from, where you're going, what is allowed for you, what is not allowed for you. And all you have to do is just follow orders. (laughs) And so for some people that may be okay, but I, I don't think this is true for the people who listen to this podcast. I don't think it is true for me and you. And I don't think it is serving us anymore into the 21st century, simply because we don't have a good story anymore. And again, we said stories like a compass, it's like a GPS navigational system, but right now ours is obsolete. We don't have one. That's why at a civilization level, we have many mutually exclusive stories or small elements of a bigger story, which are mutually exclusive. Some of them newer elements, things like, let's say, cryptos and NFTs and blockchain and artificial intelligence and technology in general, um, all of those things, genetics, robotics, nanotech, synthetic biology, uh, space exploration, all of those things have plots and subplots of different stories, but they don't kind of fit together in a bigger puzzle. And I think that that's the the part where the whole thing crumbles and we need some kind of an overarching structure, I think, which would allow the slotting of these story in, in a peaceful coexisting manner, which would allow us to survive and thrive the challenges of the 21st century rather than fall victim to it. Uh, and right now it, it doesn't seem to be, it doesn't look good to me for our civilization. Well, I think one of the things you're reflecting is that for the first time in human history, we're seeing the complexity and it's shocking. And we're not only seeing the complexity, but we're creating more complexity on top of it. And if the history, the big history of life shows anything, if that life becomes more and more complex, in its, I don't want to say search because I'm not trying to personalize life, but I don't want to anthropomorphize anything. But I do think that life becomes more complex to solve its problems and in its solving of problems becomes more intelligent. And you can call intelligence by a whole You can define it many ways, but I do believe intelligence is the ability of an organism to solve its problems. And it's one way of solving a problem. One way of solving a problem. Actually, it's pattern recognition. I mean, mean, if I really want to go where I actually think intelligence is, it's pattern recognition. But I do think that the pattern is what the organism has to figure out. And whether it does it in a conscious or non-conscious way, I don't care that, that that's not material to me. We as humans are finally seeing not just the complexity we created, but now the complexity that is starting to come. And that's a shock and that's a future shock And that's something that I think and talk about a lot because whenever we're in these periods of great transition, these paradigm shifts of who we are as humans, they're always fraught. They're always violent. They're 
always, there's always upheaval. And it's because people are scared. They, they, they don't know where they fit, so they panic. And one of the results is, as you know very well, these times give opportunity for false storytellers. Yes, exactly right. And those, as to, to quote um, Jonathan Gottschall, who has a fantastic uh, new book called The Storytelling Paradox, how our love of storytelling builds societies and tears them down. Hmm. And he says, story science reveals that everything good about story is the same as everything bad. So to hmm. get good people to behave monstrously, you must first tell them a story. Yes, exactly right. So for him, the real question is, how can we save the world from stories? Because look at it this way. A large number of people I talk to are scientists. Actually, most of my podcast audience probably have a scientific background, uh, either as engineers or in some kind of a very advanced uh, science field with advanced, multiple advanced degrees usually. Um, and so many of those people are telling me when I give the story spiel, they're telling me, well, if we had the chance to do science, uh, everything would be pure science, quote unquote, everything would be so much better, right? Jacques Fresco told me that, and I argued with him when I interviewed him on the Venus project, Arthur Schopenhauer hundreds of years ago argued that uh, once we have a language which is on par of on par of mathematics, which has no ambiguity and is as crystal clear as math, then ethics would be merely like a calculation. So that's when Arthur Schopenhauer thought humanity can make real progress. Uh, and so many scientists kind of recoil from that kind of uh, story about story that I tell them and they want to tell me back the story about science and you know whereas I kind of push forward what Jonathan Gottschall said story is both the poison and the cure people of scientific background recoil and say well story may be the poison and science is the cure I have so much to say about this. <laughs> Please, do. Please do. That's why I did such an extensive sort of setup. And it was extremely well done. Thank you. <laughs> um, so first, let's talk about the nature of story. The Actually, I'm going to back up. Let's talk about story as a technology. My constant refrain is that technology is morally neutral. Swords and plowshares. It's what we do with it that matters. So there is no way that science could tell a story that would be clearer because science isn't doing such a great job at ethics either. In fact, on one hand, you have science that is experimental. On the other hand, you have applied. Applied is really where the ethics come in, because now we're taking the things we've discovered and doing stuff with them. 
And the question that is rarely asked is, should it be done? Can it be done is the issue, not should it be done? Or should it maybe not be done this way? So everything is ethics. And that the fact that a scientist denies the ethical quandary, which is in itself a story behind their science shows me the limitation of their thought. They're not actually looking at, all they're stuck in is their framework of I'm a scientist and I do science. They can't step back and see where their science fits in to a larger worldview. And I find that sad and depressing. And if I do anything in this life, it's to show that science and ethics have to join. Everything I write is about it. <laughs> that if we don't apply ethics, and again, we learn our ethics through stories. If we don't apply ethics to our discoveries, we're lost. That is the story of extinction. That is in my answer to the Fermi paradox that we must consider how things are done, why they're done, where they're done, for whom they're done, what are the incentives, be they economic or political. And to not do this, to abrogate the responsibility, what most scientists do is they say, I've discovered this, I've invented this, I've taken out the patent on this, somebody else is gonna do the thing. Lawrence Krauss. But I don't told have to me, take responsibility for that thing. Right. Lawrence Krauss told me the questions of ethics has no impact or relevance whatsoever with respect to the questions that physics and cosmology are asking today. Ethics is utterly irrelevant in his opinion. It doesn't even figure, it's not it's perfectly useless. I know a number of cosmologists who would fervently disagree. So there's a, a uh, I think that that's completely up for grabs and debate. Um, that's his opinion. I do think that our, every single thing we as humans do is related to ethics. Every choice we make. Now, I think when you get too self-conscious about it, it can, it, you know, you can have brain freeze, behavior freeze. <laughs> um, but again, that notion of frameworks is super important. There's this wonderful film. I use it as an example all the time for a different use than it was designed for. And this is the Eames's, uh, Ray and Charles Eames's film, The Powers of Ten. Short little film. It's designed to explain exponential change. And you start with the couple on the picnic blanket. I like to look at that as every time you go out by power of 10 or in by power of 10, what's within that frame becomes your concern. What are the, who are the people, if there are any at all? Uh, what are the ethics that might happen or the choices we could make within that frame? You know, it's different if it's the couple on the, on the blanket versus the west the east side of chicago on the lake versus united states versus the globe etc so and every choice we make 
would be different if we pulled back or zoomed in based on who's in that frame. My idea of a good choice is what has the most number of wins depending on the frame of reference. And if you can say, okay, the, the people in the blanket win, the people in, on, in Chicago win, the people in the United States win, the people in the earth win, et cetera. Okay, now we're talking. <laughs> and I think that for a scientist, I think scientists have to protect themselves psychologically. And if they actually had to sit and think about the applications, even of blue sky research, and I'm all for blue sky research, I think if they had to think about the implications of what they do, they might not do it anymore if they were honest with themselves because they don't know where it's going to go and they don't know who's going to use it and what they're going to use it for. And we've seen enough examples of scientists who regretted their experiments, who turned around and then fought against be it Oppenheimer or whomever and said, you know, no, we actually have to stop with the bombs. <laughs> um, so the Russian uh, counterpart you know, to Oppenheimer uh, academic Sakharov, he also went pacifist, right, just like Oppenheimer right. did. Isn't that exactly. interesting? Yeah, well, so I, I really hope Krauss likes to, by the way, Krauss loves to say these things because he likes to plant a flag and be attacked. That's him. Great. Um, I, I do think that scientists are, for the most part, more nuanced, many of them, than that. Certainly the ones I'd really like to talk to. <laughs> and um, this is part of the bigger picture. And again, we're talking about, you know, when I use that, the new sphere as a metaphor, it's not actually a metaphor. It's actually a thing. Like we have this global brain of, of communication and, and influence uh, that we never had until the last few decades. And it's really changing how we think, how we behave, both for good and bad, you know, for the same reason that story is can be told for both good and bad it can be manipulative and propagandistic or it can illuminate truths that make us better people it's the same thing with this this idea of communication so we have to be conscious we must be conscious of how we use story how we interact how we do science all of it that's that's all i'm asking everybody <laughs> That's a basic, big, big ask, especially if people are probably unclear about how it relates to what they do. So let's let's see if we can make it a little clearer. Tell us, talk to us a little bit about the connection between story and technology in general, or story and artificial intelligence in particular. Okay, um, there are there's so many ways to to come at this. Um, Technology, let's start with technology and just in general. Um, story affects it at every level. It affects on it affects the story of why we want to explore something to invent something. It affects how we end up using 
the technology. It affects how we end up seeing the eventual technology, how we want to participate in it. Is it looked upon as a, as a good thing or a bad thing? Um, in terms of artificial intelligence itself, I mean, the biggest problem with artificial intelligence is what is it? And like story, you're going to get a lot of different definitions of artificial intelligence and what those stories are about. I mean, we all use artificial intelligence every day, you know, the search engines and, and uh, voice to text and anything we use that takes how we communicate and turns that into data that can then be communication to someone else is some kind of artificial intelligence. But let's get down to, to I don't want to talk about narrow AI. I'm not really interested in narrow AI. Um, I'm more interested in what most people call artificial general intelligence, what I call in my books specifically, because I have narrowed it down to its most narrow form, I call it artificial human intelligence. Because if I'm positing, instead of creating a brain from scratch and getting it to think, I'm recording a brain and then getting that to think. And in its simplest terms, um, to find the story to explain that in and of itself is a challenge. You're fighting two threads. The first thread, ironically, are scientists who say that can't be done. <laughs> and which I always posit, well, it's funny, they're actually doing it over there and they go, oh, but it still can't be done. <laughs> I was like, whatever, I have a story to tell. The other is your audience. And how are you best going to get the ideas of artificial intelligence, artificial human intelligence across to a reader so that they can understand your concepts and then feel at home in your concepts to the point where they are relating to your characters. You know they're artificial, they know they're artificial, but they're having an emotional reaction to them as though they're human. And for me, that was the, the challenge. Now, I also know from robot research that we will look for, and whether it's periodelia, is that how you say it? Um, you know, how our minds will look for faces and clouds and, you know, it's Jesus and a piece of toast, you know, Jesus and Ortizia, as, as I like to call it. Um, you know, we look for those, those things we recognize and create those in our head. And if we see a little robot doing something that seems even vaguely anthropomorphic, we immediately imbue that robot with empathy and start to react to it in as though they're human. Um, you know, all the stories of the guys using the robot landmine sweepers in Afghanistan and Iraq. And, you know, when the sweeper would explode, the soldier would cry because they had developed this incredibly close relationship with a piece of technology. 
Um, and they didn't want a new robot replacement. They wanted their old body to be fix, fixed fix, and fix brought it. back. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Because that was their power. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so I, I think you've got these, you're, you're talking about story on so many different levels is, is how does the reader deal with it? How do the experts that I'm using for my research give me those ideas in their own version of story? And what are the choices as a creative that you make in how you tell that story? My question, though, was a little bit from a different angle, and I probably didn't say it well, because I'm more interested of the angle applying from the point of view of the scientist, the person okay. who creates the AI, perhaps, and or the AI itself, their point of view. And you kind of do a good job of that in your books in some ways, but let me perhaps read like a paragraph here and see if that's going to kind of ring a bell about what I'm trying to, to get at here. So this is kind of my chapter 11, which I call outline, which I call the AI story. And I just, the last paragraph of, of it is the following. The dangers posed by AI originate in the same place as the dangers posed by humanity. Our story. If, like the human story, the AI story ends up as one of uniqueness, exclusivity, progress, supremacy, dominance, alienation, teleology, manifest destiny and godhood, then we can expect a similarly destructive impact. Therefore, to minimize suffering and improve our own chances of survival during the turbulent 21st century, both humanity and AI must embrace a new type of story, one that is decentralized, non-singular, non-hierarchical, non-species, non-dualistic, and non-exclusive. Because multiplicity is ethically better than a singularity, and because it is safer too. I agree with all of that, and the irony is that I think I did exactly that <laughs> in my novels. Um, that I purposely did not make it a godlike AI. I purposely made uh, there be competition. Um, you see a variety of versions. You see how every version of them differs. There is a there's a, a real purposeful. I didn't want my AIs to take over the world. I didn't want my AIs to ever be considered anything more than another personality and another tool. And Boy, I hope I made that clear. Um, you do, because... you do, and that's kind of very different in stark contrast to the Vingian or the Kurzweilian point of view, which says that once you have an AI, it's game over. 
I, I don't believe that. And while I understand their philosophy, I really do. I don't, maybe I don't want to believe it. Um, but I also don't think that their kind of AI is going to be possible anytime in the near future. Um, even the reason I dealt with uploads was very specific because I wanted to show in subtle ways, not gross ways, but in subtle ways, how we change our personalities based on, do we have a body? Do we not have a body? Are we a brain in a box? Are we a download into an artificial body? Are we a download into a brain dead live body? What are the differences that happen in each of these experiences for Peter Bernhardt or Tom Paine or Major Tom, whichever version he is? I wanted to explore the, the variety of being, number one. And number two, that while we could have a simulacrum in theory in our brain that simulated the hormonal and neurotransmitter effects of blah, 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 I wanted to get away from this idea of, of body dualism and you know, I wanted to to see what happened and play with these notions of who we are and just how tenuous we are. We're so damn tenuous as human beings. I mean, just change a few hormones and we're off. We're somebody else. Um, as a menopausal woman, let me tell you how powerful that is. <laughs> so. Um, There's a, there's so many things we could, could look at. My story chose to look at a very specific one. And I don't think any story should be seen as the be all and end all of, of stories about a subject. You can't, you just can't. Uh, you have to pick that incredibly thin path and get rid of, you know, we were talking about how part of the definition of story is what you prune away, what you get rid of. It's like, you're constantly pruning so that you have a single pathway through whatever it is you're describing, you're telling, you're sharing. And those were the choices I made. I think they are remarkably close to what you wrote as the preferable way. But I also think, and I did this very purposefully, I wanted the gateway drug to science fiction for mainstream readers. I wanted people to read Revolution and go, well, this isn't so scary. Like, not, I mean, it's scary, but this, but reading science fiction isn't so scary. It isn't the literary ghetto. It's not and it so was an hard experiment. to understand. Yeah. It's not so hard to understand. I'm going to make the really hard stuff easy to understand. And I'm going to take you by the hand and through three books, it's going to get more and more science fiction. Because that's actually how we live. You know, if, if someone from the 19th century was here right now with us, they would be minds blown, you know, Zoom and, you know, all of it. Um, I wanted to take people just a few years, metaphorically down the line, each book to see how much 
more change happens. And to have them invested in the characters and the story so that they wanted to continue. And I had a lot of mainstream readers say, I can't believe I like these books because they're not at all what I usually read. So I know I succeeded to a certain extent. Um, you, you totally did. You totally did, uh, which is why I enjoyed the book so much. Um, but a big part of it, of your story, is is kind of the human story. Maybe not directly, but indirectly. So implied as an implication. Uh, and it's more even as a question mark. So let's let's talk a little bit about that because it helps us talk both about your book and and in principle. What is the human story in your view? And should we be so arrogant, perhaps, as to have the audacity to even dare to rewrite that story? The human story is one of, well, it's really one of evolution. The human story is trying to figure out who we are, why we're here. And while we're doing that, being good to each other. That to me is the whole point. We're rewriting the human story because we can't help it. We keep on adding complexity to our existence. And the more complex things get, the more unsure we are of who we are and why we're here and how can we be good to each other. I think in rewriting those myths and those stories that the irony is that the thing we will always be is human. One of the things I always explain when I get labeled as a transhumanist one of the things I always try to explain is that we've always been transhuman. We've been transhuman since the first tools. The moment we started externalizing aids to our physical being in, and mental being in the world, we were transhuman. And we've just continued to do that. To say that we live and think and behave like Australopithecus. I'm sure we have some things in common. We have a lot in common, but we have a lot not in common. And as we continue to evolve, we need to tell different stories to help us with that evolution. And I think while we keep our stories human, our definition of human changes, they'll always be human. Peter Bernhard is human. At the end of three books, he's a robot on another planet. He's back on earth. He's, you know, helping all of everybody all over the world do it, you know, whatever he can do to help. But he's still fundamentally human. His concerns are human. His loves are human. His way of thinking of himself is bizarrely human. It's That's because different. his story is the human story still. Right, still, still. And, and I think that we could have 18 arms 
and five heads and we'll still be figuring out who we are, where we fit, what comes next. But there is dangers to that. And the problem is part of that story is the problem. Being human is the problem or the, st the story of being human anyway, I think, because think about it this way. So humanism or, you know, I agree with you that transhuman is not a good term because that's kind of basically human, which is why I wouldn't call it transhumanism. I would just call it humanism. So for a lack of better terms, the story that has brought us here today is humanism, the human story. And that story has, in my view, four major elements. The first one is the story of progress or evolution, as you said. So we kind of rose, whether in the theological sense or in the sort of evolutionary biological sense, we transcended our origin. We have this kind of upward movement from our ape uh, ancestors to the stars. Right. So that's mm -hmm. the first element of the story of humanism, the story of progress. But together with that story, because we are transcending, we are kind of God's chosen creation theologically. But the same element of that story is sneaking into the evolutionary biolo biology story, which tells us we are the pinnacle of evolution currently. We are the smartest intelligence on the planet. That then takes the shape of the story of the supremacy and centrality of humanity, which is why we call it humanism. And then the third element is the story that we are, because we are transcending our animalistic origins, there is this separation of us from nature. There is this kind of us here and nature and the rest of God's creation, the rest of the universe there. We are the intelligent species they're the others. The rest of them are there. Whether it's inanimate objects, where all the other animals, we lump it together, us and everything else, the rest of us. So then, then the, the, the third element of that story of humanism is this the separation, which I call, are we part of the world or are we a part of the world? And then the final part of that story, in the theological sense, or in the transhumanist senses, we are destined to become gods. And so these are the four elements of that story. And that story has brought us here today. But the problem is that it has justified the worst crimes against all kinds of other species. And, and it has given us a blank check, if you will, to do with our planet, all the other animals, or um, uh, sentiences, whatever we wish to do. And the danger is that if the AIs come up with the same story, but they're not going to call it humanism, obviously, they're going to call it AIism, then we should have the same faith that we've given the other sentiences in the story of humanism within the story that the AIs would have, which would be called AIism. <laughs> and so what I'm trying to say is that we need a new story for us so that there could be a new story for them. And that story 
has to have space for us and them, and maybe there shouldn't be even us and them. And that kind of a teleological, and that's why I took a little bit of a, a, a tweak there when you're talking about intelligence, because it's not necessarily the case that evolution favors intelligence. There's many examples where there have been loss of intelligence as an, uh, as an, as an adapt, uh, adaptation strategy because intelligence is very expensive in terms of energy and therefore it uh, creates advantages and it creates disadvantages and in some cases having less intelligence but consuming less energy is a lot more of a survival threat uh, and, and uh, survival strategy than having more intelligence but having to pay for it by consuming more energy. And there are many biological examples of that. Or you can sort of decentralize intelligence like the bacterias do over generations and over numbers, right? So people say, well, we have conquered our planet. We're the smartest uh, intelligence on the planet and we have conquered it. But actually the planet is conquered by bacteria, not by Correct. humans. So it's from evolutionary point of view, it's it's at the very least, depending on how you count it, whether you count numbers or how you count it, how you measure it, you could say actually the most successful bacteria are the most successful entity on the planet, not humans, because they're in the countless trillions of entities probably, right? But going back to the human story, so the new that new story is is got has to be rewritten so that it has carves the space for that potential conflict between ai and humanity to be avoided to have conflict resolving mechanisms within the story just like the world cup has the rules for the soccer game and so we have to basically abandon humanism perhaps just and and hope that ai would not come up with aiism any of those AIisms, or not AIisms, but humanisms, or like, they're kind of a, a racism, really. It's just a speciesism, right? Humanism is a type of speciesism. It's us versus them. So the circle is expanding over time. First, it it was a circle only for white males over thirty years of age who had property. Period. Everyone else was outside of the circle. Then it started expanding, started including younger males, older males, then eventually women, then eventually other races, um, etc. And now we're going to have to go beyond the species barrier because the future clash may be, and th the reason why we're facing, for example, not only climate change, but species extinction, uh, you know, we are in the midst of the, the sixth extinction and uh, uh, it, we are basically exterminating, as, as uh, Yuval Noah Harari says, Homo sapiens is a mass murdering species because when we show up somewhere, whether in North America or in Australia, there is this extinction of a number of other species because we push them extinct. And the reason is, again, I say our story. Because our story tells us it's okay. The world is our garden and God created them to be ours for the taking. Or evolutionary biology says we are at the top of the pyramid. 
So it's okay, we can do whatever we want. It's giving us the same black check, blank check that theology gave us. And I'm saying if we follow that, we have to break with that kind of uniqueness, with that kind of divine position, with that kind of teleological direction from less intelligence to more intelligence and favoring one over the other. I, it, I'm just trying to say we, we need to be more like a mosaic of colors or spectrum mm -hmm. of light. And I'm just struggling really to come with a story that can actually do that if it's at all possible. And I have no idea. What about just lifeism? You know, we're, we're looking at this from a, there are countries that are starting to grant sentience and therefore a form of personhood to non-human organisms. Yeah, the UK granted sentience to octopuses like a week ago or something, and still they fish out millions of them every year. Well, we're one step at a time. In New Zealand, they granted a river personhood. Yeah, yeah. And if we hadn't had an indigenous population demand it, it would never have happened. And thank goodness it has, because it's now protected this region. We're humans have a really hard time doing the thing I described earlier. We have a really hard time looking at different uh, ourselves within different frames, different frameworks, different contexts. But the only way and we know how to do it is through story. This is very true, and uh, I believe firmly that we're going through as a species right now the too slow but slow understanding of our place within the biosphere of the planet. And again, it's that concept of we're start, the, the complexity is starting to dawn on us. And because we're seeing climate change, because we're seeing mass extinction. And unfortunately, we're not as social creatures, we don't move very fast in correcting, in course correction. So I think it's going to take even more destruction and imminent extinction on our own parts for us to actually wake up to fix things because there are too many people who like the status quo. And actually, I never talked about status quo, about the, the new mythos. And I want to do that for a moment because it, it's very applicable here. Sure. One of the issues I have with contemporary storytelling and modern storytelling, and to be brutally honest, the entire hero's journey, Joseph Campbell has a lot to answer for. I thought he would think it was very smart in his use of, of saying, hey, look, we have some real commonalities as humans with stories. But people, and he at the end, took that as the be-all and end-all of story when it wasn't. And, and his stories were through his own framework as a white male uh, elite in North America. <laughs> you know, so he could look, look down in a way on some of these stories uh, in a way that, that I think ultimately it re was revealing, but it was also revealing in ways I don't think he, he anticipated. Um, 
one of the big things in the hero's journey is this idea of status quo. And so the hero goes out, something happens. The status quo is upset and the hero goes out and has an adventure. And that adventure is to restore the broken status quo in most cases. And then the hero comes back, the hero has changed through their adventures, but the status quo of society has been restored. And this is actually a very common uh, Asian structure where tradition and status quo was a value, was highly valued. Um, so one of the problems with restoring of the status quo is that's not how it works. That's not how life works. It's not how reality works. It's not how history works. Not how anything works. And change is seen as a feared thing. We have to stop the change. And change is seen as a villain. It's seen as a war. It's seen as an attack. It's seen as something that is bad for the people at, from the beginning. So what if we told stories that embrace change, that actually analyze change? What change is good? What change is bad? I'm not saying embrace all change. Some change is bad. This is where the ethics come in. Ha ha. <laughs> and, but if we could look at change as something morally neutral, like technology, which of course at its heart encompasses change, then we could come to these stories that we're talking about now with a more open sense of wonder and analysis and, and, and actually critical analysis as opposed to fear. And this is where I think maybe there's a melding of what we're talking about. That finding those stories that don't rely on coming back to the beginning, that the beginning isn't there anymore is okay. And again, going back to the, you know, how I tried to deal with the denouement in, in conscience to show that there's, there's energy, there's action in beginnings to come around to a new beginning, not the old beginning. They can never go back to that world. It's done. But what's the exciting growth that can happen in the new story? And there is, so the, what I'm taking from what you just said is like, everywhere we are at, it's a beginning. Yes. And every situation, every crisis, every point in one's life is a beginning. And there is never, and every story that we tell never ends because the end of the story is just another beginning. 
So the circle keeps going. Whether you want to call it the circle of life or the universe or whatever you want to call it, like the best we can do is we start where we are with what you've got, what we've got. That's that's all. And then we have to be aware that we never arrive. We never get to the end. I mean, it could be our physical end, but the story goes on. And it's only a slice of the story. It's it's a That's story. It. It's it's not the story, it's a story. But it's not the story and it's it's just a little color or shade or note of the whole you 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 use a lot of music in your in your books so it's one note of the whole symphony of the big story mm -hmm. of the orchestra of life or the universe well i don't know um so pj what are you planning to do for your next steps with the idea of the new mythos other than a Facebook group? What's the next story, the, the next step for you? Is it the book? So there, there are two things I'm doing. Actually, there are three th things I'm doing. The first thing I'm doing is I'm writing a book on the new mythos. The And just, again, it's not going to be the be-all and end-all. It's going to be the things that... I find fascinating that touch me from all the things we've talked about today and more. I'm also writing a series of linked short stories and these are set in the future. Um, you know, I thought it was done with Peter Bernhardt. Apparently I'm not. Um, it's he's funny you say in, that. In, 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 go on. I, I had a feeling that you had something more to say about it because after I read the third book and I've read the, all three books and I love them and you had that very extensive general mom at the end, as you said, and I was actually even quite impressed and surprised and it reminded me of Kim Stanley Robinson's work and all that, but I was still thinking she's not done with that. I think she has more to say on this. So, yeah, I do. Uh, there'll be at least at least one story uh but so there'll be a linked universe um but it it'll be now instead of kind of the perennial 5 10 15 years in the future this will be more like 30 to 50 years in the future i'm still trying to nail down exactly for myself from both a political and a technological standpoint where this is all going to be um but probably more just like 30 um a, link, a, a group of linked short stories where we look at the huge paradigm changes that are occurring in the world. I, there's, a, there's a theory that people love to discount, but I find an enormous amount of use in it, both as a, as a historian and as a writer. Uh, and it's called the Axial Age. Carl Jasper's 1940s um, looked at a very narrow period of time. It's actually a larger period of time than he posited. And he only looked at a certain number of cultures. And it's actually almost every culture on earth. Um, but basically the theory was in the first millennia BC, because of massive changes around the world in agriculture, 
and how we grouped together as humans. We were no longer family, tribes, traveling nomadically through a landscape or hunter gatherers, or we were coming together in larger groups, we were creating cities, we were making hierarchical decisions in how we lived with each other. And most importantly, we were creating laws. So Everybody the was building story was the agrarian revolution. The agrarian changed, revolution changed from hunter gathering story to agrarian revolution story. And and but also for me interestingly, you know, we talk about the agrarian revolution and lead with the word agrarian. To me the most fascinating part was we came together in cooperative groups. And the only way we could cooperate at large scale beyond Dunbar's number. And this is something I don't hear talked about a lot. Um, but beyond, if you get beyond Dunbar's number, you got to start creating rules because you can't just have the pressure of knowing another person to say, hey, shame on you. Don't do that. You know better. doesn't work. You actually have to have laws. And so everybody started creating laws in all the major cultures on earth. And they started not, their laws actually reflected a difference in how we looked at ourselves as a human individual how we looked at ourselves in community with others, and even, and this is where theology came in, how we looked at ourselves in relation to the cosmos. So we even changed our religions. This was the beginning of well, the laws of Judaism, uh, Western Greek culture, ancient Greek culture, uh, Taoism, Confucianism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and the codification of Hinduism, much like the codification of uh, Judaism, they were older, uh, cultures, but this is when the real writing started. <laughs> and like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna write this all down and make laws. And Buddhism, and all of this happened in this one millennia. That, and now we realize it's even it, it occurred in Mesoamerica, it occurred in Africa, it occurred occurred all over the world. It's just Jasper's knew what he knew, and those were the groups he was sticking in his his little format. So. I posit that we are in the midst of a new axial age. And I would like to figure out a group of link short stories to that effect. Uh, so I'm already writing a number of stories that show how the changes of how we're going to live, they will be different than they are now, 50 years from now. And I'm positing that, the, you know, what is this going to look like? This, this shift of ethics, this shift of our sense of ourselves, our sense of community, and our sense of ourselves in the cosmos. It's all going to change in a similar way. And it may take a millennia. It may take less. But we're certainly on our way. We're in it already, whether people realize it or not. So that's what I'm working on. Uh, and I'm also working with a group. Um, that is wants to advance the story of which is one of the reasons why I was talking about it. Um, and I'm being brought on as an advisor and consultant, basically their in-house futurist, um, to help them continue make uh, educational materials and interviews, and you know teach these concepts as a really good paradigm for us to start thinking about our next steps. And it was when I made that connection between the noosphere and the axial age 
that I kind of went, aha. (laughs) Yeah, to me, one necessitates the other. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. And um, I, I really wanted a... Or rather, I needed... a larger framework because it's how I work. I, I need the, the bigger framework of, of the technologies and the philosophical and ethical frameworks for me to start playing inside. But I already have about 14 story ideas. I've been, I'm halfway or most of the way through about four stories, um, which I really should just start finishing up and, and, uh, and four sending stories out. on the new Axio age. Yeah. Yeah, so wow. they'll, they'll, they'll be probably about fourteen. Will be the be my my is my goal. I don't know why that number is just sort of what it is right now in my head. Um, and I just want us to start thinking about it again. You know, my whole mission. I want people to start thinking about what's coming, so they're not so afraid of it. But but that's not enough, though. So they they'll be thinking. But the way we think is we think through story. And this if, is why I'm telling them. <laughs> right, right. So we need, we need, right. So, so your solution is give them 14 stories. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought I gave my, my readers 21 visions for the 21st century in my conversations with the future, but it's not enough. I don't, I don't feel like I've done anything really. I, I feel but this is accumulative. You have to remember, like your story isn't going to be the one that nails it. My story isn't going to be the one that nails it. Kim Stanley Robinson's stories aren't the one that nail it. I mean, you know, we can look at some pretty heavy hitters who all have very profound things to say about what's coming and who we are and what will be and all of this. And yet, Everybody's just got their little slice of it, as we said before. We each take our own path through this big wilderness with lots of trees, which I hope stick around. And we can only tell the stories that we know. There's no way that the story I tell and the story that Kim tells is going to be the same. Do you know? Like, there's just no way that that sure, yeah. we may have similar themes. For instance, uh, I did an interview the other night with Arkady Martin, who wrote two phenomenal space operas, uh, a duology. I watched it. And yeah. okay, there you go. And and the thing that blew our minds, and which is why we were asked to speak together, because the interviewer had read our books and went, "Wait a second, they're about exactly the same thing, except they could not be." The subgenres, the style, the times and places, the types of characters, they, they could not be more different. And yet, we were addressing every single similar issue from AI to empire to identity to the role of the outsider. To, I mean, you name it. You just boom, 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 being human. But what, all right, great being, stories all are about the same four or five things, right? Yeah, but they're not about empire and artificial intelligence and brain-computer interfaces and... <laughs> But but these were and and I think if you read Arkady and you read me, I think you're in for some great reads with both of us. But I also think that um, 
you'll get very different approaches to how we dealt with all of those topics. And yet we came up with a lot of the same answers, but again, in completely different ways. Like you're not, you're not looking at it in terms of answers. You're looking at it in terms of story. So her story and my story are utterly different. And yet we're talking about the same things to get people thinking about the same things that we think are important right now. Let me ask this in a little bit different way then. Do you think that any future story, human story, or that rewritten human story should be fiction or nonfiction? Because obviously my book so far at least is nonfiction and I debate with myself every day if that's a good idea or not. But there's obviously examples of, uh, I don't know, take uh, Adam Smith's Wealth of the Nation, which Wealth of the Nations, which is nonfiction, or Karl Marx's Das Kapital, which is nonfiction, books that change the world. Or mm -hmm. you could have even terrible books like Atlas Shrugged, which are trying to oppose that with a successful in, in that sense, a successful fiction uh, book, right? So, so if yeah. if she's trying to do something to say, if she's trying to say something against Karl Marx, she's not saying it in a response via a non-fiction book, but she's saying it via a fiction book. And in that sense, she has found a niche and an audience and followers, you know, a hundred years later, people who still follow that work and that line of thinking and reasoning. And Atlas Shrugged is for them just like Das Kapital is for others. You need both. Um, you need people who sit down and think out the hard thoughts. I will argue that most of the people who have read Atlas Shrugged and believe they are against Marxism have never read Marx. They are told what Marx is, and then the straw man of Marx in her books is knocked down. I'm not saying I'm a Marxist. I'm just saying that I could say the same thing for Wealth of Nations. For every man who who screams, you know, down stock exchange, Adam Smith, when you actually see that Adam Smith believes in regulation and doesn't think it's possible to live without it because unfettered capitalism will become the despotism and feudalism that he fears, they didn't read that part or they didn't remember that part or they never read it in the first place. <laughs> yeah, so, I have a so, whole so paper. Right. This is, you know, this is the, the thing. I will say that the place of fiction in these kinds of stories makes us, it gives us that step back from the pure thought behind it. When you imbue a character, when you give a character at all and provide a reader with someone to whom they can empathize, to whom they can literally be in their shoes as the character, it, <laughs> I said this before to you, it's the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. It, it just, it, you know, Mary Poppins was right. <laughs> um, it makes it much easier. You know, it's so much easier to read 
well, if you want to talk about about class and 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 the proletariat, I mean, it's a lot easier and more interesting to read John Steinbeck than it is to read Karl Marx. The Grapes of Wrath, yeah. Right, Grapes of Wrath. Um, I mean, many of his works, but the Grapes of Wrath specifically. Um, it's it's an easier way in for most people. Because let's face it, most thinkers are not great writers. They're just not. There are some that are, but some of the greatest thoughts, it's hard slogging. It's You're not going, I can't put this down. <laughs> you know, it's like, there's no engine necessarily behind it. You're in it for the intellect and the, on the concepts and the abstraction. You're not in it to be wrapped up in something. And most people want to be wrapped up in something. So when we think of the great works of literature, you know, we learned more about class struggle in Victorian England from Charles Dickens than anyone. Um, when you look at the, you know, you talk about books that change the world, part of one of the lectures I give is on the effect of storytelling and empathy and how this creates an empathy engine. Um, and I talk a lot about- And I should interrupt that, here to say it's this oh. paper that's called Yaki Gets Yummy, How Speculative Fiction Creates Society by PJ Money, and I highly recommend people check it out. I'll put a link in the show because it's it's uh, it's super worth it, and it's it's brilliant in so many ways. So, yeah, sorry thank, for the interruption. Thank you very much. I have to do a plug for you because I know you're not going to do it. Yeah, <laughs> um, I try so hard, um, and then I feel so yeah. Anyway, um, I. I talk a lot about how certain works of literature did change the world and they weren't Das Kapital or Mein Kampf or Wealth of Nations. They were Oliver Twist and Uncle Tom's Cabin and The Awakening and, you know, et cetera. So you've got all these works of, of literature that exposed, created empathy for an undergroup and exposed the reality to many people who didn't want to see it or didn't know it even existed of, you know, what's it like to be an orphan in Victorian England? What's it like to be a woman in Victorian America? What's it like to be a, uh, what's it like to be a slave in the slave South in the U.S.? Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uncle Tom's Cabin is one of those books that people forget about. In the U.S., it was the most read book next to the Bible. Everyone read it. And this is one of those weird things about the siloification of, of media now that didn't exist in the 19th century. Everybody read everything. There was less of everything, but they all, everybody read it. You know, the whole story of, of uh, whether it's apocryphal or not, um, Abraham Lincoln saying to Louisa May Alcott, who wrote it, you're the, so you're the little lady who made this great big war. Because it brought to people 
the horrifying reality and she really watered it down and <laughs> she knew she was watering it down. Um, but the story that doesn't get told that's really interesting is uh, so Anna of Anna and the King of Siam story and her last name evades me at the moment had been very affected by Uncle Tom's Cabin. And so she becomes the governess to the King of Siam's children. She's there to tutor them. And so she teaches them Uncle Tom's Cabin. And you even see it in the musical version, The King and I. And which very much upset the king because Siam was a slave culture. And his son, who became king, his eldest, overturned the laws of slavery in Siam, in Thailand. He made them, made it illegal to keep slaves. And he made it very, very clear it had nothing to do with Anna. Because <laughs> he didn't want to seem like a, you know, uh, Thailand had, had, had always historically been a, a non-colonized nation. And he wanted to make it very clear that he had no Western influence. That was very important. But having read a book as a kid about what slavery was like, he said, I don't want to do this anymore. I mean, imagine that. This is, this is the level of effect I'm interested in. Now, we don't read books like that anymore because people aren't interested in reading both sides of the story. Southerners read Uncle Tom's Cabin. Northerners read Uncle Tom's Cabin. Everybody read it because they wanted to understand what this book was about. Whereas today, if people make snap judgments, well, that's not going to be a book for me. They don't hold my politics. They are not from my background. There's so much out, more out there I can read or see or watch, listen to, that I'm just going to stay in my lane and I'm going to listen or watch or read the things that tell me who I am already. And support my worldview. And this niching and, and siloification of, of media is a really, I mean, we talk about what's really dangerous, that's super dangerous. Um, and we've been doing it for decades now. Um, we don't have a handful of TV channels. We have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of <laughs> and Seth we Godin says that the, the triumph of Facebook and Google and so on is not a triumph of technology, but a triumph of storytelling. Well, but it's always about storytelling. All communication is storytelling. You know, that goes back to the very beginning of what we were talking about. Um, but the irony is that we still build those silos somehow, that, that we're still building them. Um, I've watched this happen over the last five, six years because of politics and medical beliefs and all the rest. Um, we're cutting ourselves off from everybody. And there's something to be said, you have to get rid of the trolls because trolls, it's very interesting. Troll culture never, and the, and the um, weaponization of troll culture where it's now actually part of weapons of misinformation is something that we've never had to deal with in the same way ever in human history. And we're still, you know, our little paleolithic brains, man, <laughs> we're still struggling 
with this notion that there are people who are out there saying things specifically to divide us and specifically to harm us. And while you could see it, say it is a triumph of story, it's also, as you said, the difficulties of story, the dangers of story, where story gets weaponized. Uh, I talk a lot about weaponization of narrative and how people ha are using it as a weapon, an actual weapon. This is not, this is not a metaphor. This is not a metaphor. That's why uh, Jonah Sachs called it uh, the, the story wars. And, and um, the, that's kind of the, the clash of, 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 of possible future stories for our future. It's, and the story wars in that sense may be the most important part of any war. First of all, the story wars are always the most important part of the war because it tells us who's right, who's wrong, and who's won and who's lost, and how do we measure it? Um, and, and who is good and who is bad, obviously. But, but, but also in terms of the future and for the 21st century, it's going to give us a direction about if or how we can address our problems and so on. Uh, and how and and why and etc. Um, so let me give you a, a little quote, and you can probably unpack it because it's. And I I want to finish here the last couple of minutes, perhaps with just. Um, uh, and it's, it it's just not even a directly relevant quote, but maybe it is from your book Conscience, and it's a it's a quote from Doctor Ruth, which is probably my favorite character in the book. Mine even too. Though, <laughs> even though she's not kind of like the main protagonist, but you could call it in, in the, the movie world like a supporting actor or mm -hmm. supporting character. She's kind of like my favorite because she's like the funniest and, and wittiest of them all in a way. But she says in one place, the future is certain, but the past is, un the past is unpredictable. And she gives that as a Soviet proverb. And that's a proverb I've never heard before first. But can you unpack this for us first? And then I'll tell you what it reminded me to. Because it's kind of a paradoxical statement. Let me repeat it. The future is certain, but the past is unpredictable. Well, and this was the, it is a Soviet proverb, uh, which didn't surprise me. It was very, uh, very Cold War, very, um, so what it means is that sense in propaganda and in the communication of nation building, where you set a goal, you've got your plans, you've got your, your, your ideology, but you have to rewrite the past which is what my books are about, is that that is the big bad in, in, as, as they wind through is this rewriting of history. You need to rewrite the past to keep the ideological purity that your, that your heroes of your past that you're manufacturing will fit into the new bold future you are marching into. And your, well, any, Every country does it. It's not just the Soviets. 
every country does it. We're watching, we're especially watching the culture wars of what was our past and what's our future. I mean, talk about changing the past. The people who don't want to teach history in this country, don't even get me started. <laughs> um, but this fear of, of sharing um, the realities of history to young people because they think, well, it'll, it'll upset them if they actually knew what happened. Well, that's why you have to tell them. So every, not only does every culture do it, every empire does this. Like this is a big empire building thing where we literally set our goals as who we are as a people, who we are as an empire. And then we have to obliterate all the history behind us that doesn't fit the narrative. And I wanted to make it clear that that's still happening and it will continue to happen as long as people in power are afraid of history. And to use another quote again from Dr. Ruth in support of what you just said, she says, quote, there is a war, but there is no enemy except our make-belief, end of quote. So that's precisely what we're talking about, the kind of the story wars. And the right. enemy is not an enemy, but it's our make-belief because we believe all those false stories of our choice, all of us, in one way or another, to one degree or another. And so the enemy is our kind of own make-belief and desire or inclination to prefer a story, one story over another, not for historical reasons, but for reasons others. Um, you know, and when I gave the original quote, the future is certain, but the past is unpredictable, unpredictable that reminded me to 1984, George Orwell, mm -hmm. where he says, those who control the past controls the f control the future, but those who control the present control the past. Mm -hmm. So it, it's kind of, it's, it's basically the same idea. And that kind of brings us perhaps to rewriting the future story or um, the new mythos and basically the, the whole kind of idea of, of a story as a crucial element of, of our future. And I want to bring a quote for, from Cory Doctorow um, that's kind of very inspiring and illuminating and kind of directed me in my search for, for what I'm trying to do and maybe what you're trying to do here. And he says this quote, I make no claim to predicting the future. I make up stories. Stories are better than predictions. Predictions tell us that the future is inevitable. Stories tell us that the future is up for grabs. Absolutely, 100% agree. It's funny, even in my work as a futurist, I have to really explain, I'm not making predictions, I'm writing scenarios. I'm saying, if we go this way, this could happen. A little bit this way, it, this could happen. Add that in, that could happen. And you know, in professional futurism, you're supposed to give best, worst, and middle case scenarios which I always find amusing um, because they're incredibly, um, it's best case for who, you know, you're supposed to aim them at the organization you're working with. Um, but even that is debatable. 
Um, we're all of it is telling stories. All of it is telling stories, and we hope that through the storytelling that we're illuminating certain truths. You know, people look back at certain works of, let's say, science fiction. So um, I I think it's in Revolution. I I reference both uh, 1984 and Brave New World, and Peter says to himself, I don't know which one, we're in both, but I don't know which one's more scary. <laughs> and then it's like, I think actually Brave New World is more scary because at that point they're trying to manufacture consent. That's what the bad guys are doing. And the soma of our, of our uh, time. And I'm not saying that that particular thing's gonna happen, but I'm saying in, in my stories or in Corey's stories or in anybody's stories, we're just saying we're going to take a trend and we're going to run with it. And we're also going to, again, in that pruning process of story, we're going to be missing a lot of the complexity because you have to. You can't, you can't tell it all. That's reality, right? And even then, we can't take in all of reality. We, we know that our brains aren't capable of it. Um, we only take in enough to survive, to eat and live and reproduce <laughs> and uh those those stories become whether they're cautionary tales or roadmaps they become a way for us to reference reality too so so it's a feedback loop just in the way I said, my character in a story was referencing previous science fiction. We're doing that ourselves through this entire interview. We're referencing stories. And we're showing the reality that those stories illuminated and the truth that they illuminated. And we're hoping that those are signposts to a better way of life. Little pieces of truth that create signposts on the way of creating a better way of life. Well, PJ, let's hope that I'm I'm actually pretty sure that you're leaving pretty good signposts myself uh, with your three books now and with papers like Yaki Gets Yummy, How Speculative Fiction Creates Society, because forget the Yaki Gets Yummy, that's very well done in the whole paper and how you finish with it, it's great. But the key for me is how speculative fiction creates society. And most people think it's the other way around. People think that society creates speculative fiction. But actually, it's like one of those things where art imitates life that imitates art, right? Which is what great art is is about and which is what great speculative fiction is all about, great science fiction is all about, great music is all about. So I think for you, I think your trilogy does that very well. So, and uh, let's hope the rest of us, we can, we can leave our own little signposts to being inspired by stories like yours. Thank you very much. So, PJ, where can people find more about you and your work? Well, I'm on almost all social media, just PJ Manny, 
pretty easy to find, M-A-N-N-E-Y. Um, and to find out uh, more about my actual work, I would look uh, any bookstores uh, in terms of uh, websites, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, et cetera. My books will all be there. Um, my papers, you can find them on any of the research hubs. Uh, there's, um, well, yeah, YouTube. I'm, I'm pretty much everywhere. So, PJ, we've been uh, talking for two and a half hours or so, and we've covered a very wide, diverse field of topics. Um, what is the best way to send our audience away? What What's the best way to finish our conversation? Do you have a final message for us, perhaps? My final message would be Well, take in as many stories as possible. I believe that stories are an empathy engine. They help create compassion for people who are unlike us. And through our stories, we're going to learn how to expand our circle of concern. We're going to learn how to expand our framework, the literal frames of how we see ourselves and each other in the world. and. Ultimately, I hope that we can see ourselves as just one part of an extraordinary species for good and bad, <laughs> but an extraordinary species that uh, has any number of potential futures and that we're the ones in charge of creating those futures and don't let anyone take your ability to create your future away. Don't take. Don't let anyone take your ability to create your future away. Wow, I really like that. PJ Manny, thank you so much for spending so much time with us today. It is always a pleasure. You are my favorite. <laughs> thank you. If you guys enjoyed this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation.